Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 29 through 31 of Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. And now, chapter 29, Cockneys. Then there is the steam engine style of driving. These drivers were mostly people from towns who never had a horse of their own and generally traveled by rail. They always seemed to think that a horse was something like a steam engine, only smaller. At any rate, they think that if they could only pay for it, a horse is bound to go just as far and just as fast and with just as heavy a load as they please, and by the roads heavy and muddy or dry and good. Be they stony or smooth, uphill or downhill, it is all the same. On, on, on one must go, at the same pace, with no relief and no consideration. These people never think of getting out to walk up a steep hill. Oh, no, no. They have paid to ride, and ride they will. The horse? Oh, he's used to it. What were horses made for, if not to drag people uphill? Walk? A good joke indeed. And so the whip is plied, and the rain is chucked, and often a rough, scolding voice cries out, Go along, you lazy beast! And then another slash of the whip, when all the time we are doing our very best to get along, uncomplaining and obedient, though often sorely harassed and downhearted. This steam engine style of driving wears us up faster than any other kind. I would far rather go 20 miles with a good considerate driver than I would go 10 with some of these. It would take less out of me. Another thing, they scarcely ever put on the brake, however steep the downhill may be, and thus bad accidents sometimes happen, or if they do put it on, they often forget to take it off at the bottom of the hill. And more than once I have had to pull halfway up the next hill with one of the wheels held by the brake, before my driver chose to think about it. And that is a terrible strain on a horse. Then these cockneys, instead of starting at an easy pace, as a gentleman would do, generally set off at full speed from the very stable yard. And when they want to stop, they first whip us, and then pull up so suddenly that we're nearly thrown on our haunches and our mouths jagged with the bit. They call that pulling up with a dash, and when they turn a corner, they do it as sharply as if there were no right side or wrong side of the road. I well remember one spring evening I and Rory had been out for the day. Rory was the horse that mostly went with me when a pair was ordered, and a good honest fellow he was. We had our own driver, and as he was always considerate and gentle with us, we had a very pleasant day. We were coming home at a good smart pace. About twilight, our road turned sharp to the left, but as we were close to the hedge on our own side, and there was plenty of room to pass, our driver did not pull us in. As we neared the corner, I heard a horse and two wheels coming rapidly down the hill toward us. The hedge was high, and I could see nothing, but the next moment we were upon each other. Happily for me, I was on the side next the hedge. Rory was on the left side of the pole, and had not even a shaft to protect him. The man who was driving was making straight for the corner, and when he came in sight of us, he had no time to pull over to his own side. The whole shock came upon Rory. The gig shaft ran right into the chest, making him stagger back with a cry that I shall never forget. The other horse was thrown upon his haunches, and one shaft broken. It turned out that it was a horse from our own stables, with the high-wheeled gig that the young men were so fond of. The driver was one of those random, ignorant fellows 
who don't even know which is their own side of the road, or, if they know, don't care. And there was poor Rory with his flesh torn open and bleeding, and the blood streaming down. They said if it had been a little more to one side, it would have killed him. And a good thing for him, poor fellow, if it had. As it was, it was a long time before the wound healed, and then he was sold for coal carting, and what that is, up and down these steep hills, only horses know. Some of the sights I saw there, where a horse had to come downhill with a heavily loaded two-wheel cart behind him, on which no brake could be placed, make me sad even now to think of. After Rory was disabled, I often went in the carriage with a mare named Peggy, who stood in the next stall to mine. She was a strong, well-made animal, of a bright dun color, beautifully dappled, and with a dark brown mane and tail. There was no high breeding about her, but she was very pretty and remarkably sweet-tempered and willing. Still, there was an anxious look about her eye, by which I knew that she had some trouble. The first time we went out together, I thought she had a very odd pace. She seemed to go partly a trot, partly a canter, three or four paces, and then a little jump forward. It was very unpleasant for any horse who pulled with her, and made me quite fidgety. When we got home, I asked her what made her go in that odd, awkward way. Ah, she said, in a troubled manner, I know my paces are very bad, but what can I do? It really is not my fault. It is just because my legs are so short. I stand nearly as high as you, but your legs are a good three inches longer above your knee than mine, and of course you can take a much longer step and go much faster. You see, I did not make myself. I wish I could have done so. I would have had long legs then. All my troubles come from my short legs, said Peggy, in a despondent tone. But how is it, I said, when you are so strong and good-tempered and willing? Why, you see, said she, men will go so fast, and if one can't keep up to the other horses, it's nothing but whip, whip, whip all the time. And so I've had to keep up as I could, and I've got into this ugly shuffling pace. It was not always so. When I lived with my first master, I always went a good regular trot, but then he was not in such a hurry. He was a young clergyman in the country, and a good, kind master he was. They had two churches a good way apart, and a great deal of work, but he never scolded or whipped me for not going faster. He was very fond of me. I only wish I was with him now. But he had to leave and go to a large town, and then I was sold to a farmer. Some farmers, you know, are capital masters, but I think this one was a low sort of man. He cared nothing about good horses or good driving. He only cared for going fast. I went as fast as I could, but that would not do, and he was always whipping. So I got into this way of making a spring forward to keep up. On market nights he used to stay very late at the inn, and then drive home at a gallop. One dark night he was galloping home as usual, when all of a sudden the wheel came against some great heavy thing in the road, and turned the gig over in a minute. He was thrown out, and his arm broken, and some of his ribs, I think. At any rate, it was the end of my living with him, and I was not sorry. But you see it will be the same everywhere for me, if men must go so fast. 
I wish my legs were longer. Poor Peggy! I was very sorry for her, and I could not comfort her, for I knew how hard it was upon slow-paced horses to be put with fast ones. All the whipping comes to their share, and they can't help it. She was often used in the phaeton, and was very much liked by some of the ladies, because she was so gentle, and some time after this she was sold to two ladies who drove themselves and wanted a safe, good horse. I met her several times out in the country, going a good steady pace, and looking as happy and contented as a horse could be. I was very glad to see her, for she deserved a good place. After she left us, another horse came in her stead. He was young, and had a bad name for shying and starting, by which he had lost a good place. I asked him what made him shy. "'Well, I hardly know,' he said. "'I was timid when I was young, and was a good deal frightened several times.' "'and if I saw anything strange, I used to turn and look at it. "'You see, with our blinkers, one can't see or understand "'what a thing is unless one looks round. "'And then my master always gave me a whipping, "'which, of course, made me start on, "'and did not make me less afraid. "'I think if he would have let me just look at things quietly "'and see that there was nothing to hurt me, "'it would have been all right, and I should have got used to them.' One day an old gentleman was riding with him, and a large piece of white paper or rag blew across just on one side of me. I shied and started forward. My master, as usual, whipped me smartly, but the old man cried out, "'You're wrong! You're wrong! You should never whip a horse for shying. He shies because he's frightened, and you only frighten him more and make the habit worse.' "'So I suppose all men don't do so.' I am sure I don't want to shy for the sake of it. But how should one know what is dangerous and what is not, if one is never allowed to get used to anything? I am never afraid of what I know. Now I was brought up in a park where there were deer. Of course I knew them as well as I did a sheep or a cow. But they are not common, and I know many sensible horses who are frightened at them, and who kick up quite a shindy before they'll pass a paddock where there are deer." I knew what my companion said was true, and I wished that every young horse had as good masters as Farmer Gray and Squire Gordon. Of course, we sometimes came in for good driving here. I remember one morning I was put into a light gig and taken out to a house in Pulteney Street. Two gentlemen came out. The taller of them came round to my head. He looked at the bit and bridle and just shifted the collar with his hand to see if it fitted comfortably. "'Do you consider this horse wants a curb?' he said to the hostler. "'Well,' said the man, "'I should say he would go just as well without. "'He has an uncommon good mouth, "'and though he has a fine spirit, he has no vice. "'But we generally find people like the curb.' "'I don't like it,' said the gentleman. "'Be so good as to take it off "'and put the rein in at the cheek. "'An easy mouth is a great thing on a long journey, "'is it not, old fellow?' he said. "'patting my neck. "'Then he took the reins, "'and they both got up. "'I can remember now how quietly he turned me round, "'and then with a light feel of the rein "'and drawing the whip gently across my back, "'we were off. "'I arched my neck and set off at my best pace. "'I found I had someone behind me "'who knew how a good horse ought to be driven. "'It seemed like old times again. "'It made me feel quite happy. "'This gentleman took a great liking to me, 
and after trying me several times with the saddle, he prevailed upon my master to sell me to a friend of his, who wanted a safe, pleasant horse for riding. And so it came to pass that in the summer I was sold to Mr. Barry. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. We'll return with Chapter 30, A Thief, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 30, A Thief. My new master was an unmarried man. He lived at Bath and was much engaged in business. His doctor advised him to take horse exercise, and for this purpose he bought me. He hired a stable a short distance from his lodgings and engaged a man named Filcher as groom. My master knew very little about horses, but he treated me well, and I should have had a good and easy place but for circumstances of which he was ignorant. He ordered the best hay with plenty of oats, crushed beans and bran with vetches or rye grass, as the man might think needful. I heard the master give the order, so I knew there was plenty of good food, and I thought I was well off. For a few days all went on well. I found that my groom understood his business. He kept the stable clean and airy, and he groomed me thoroughly, and was never otherwise than gentle. He had been a hostler for one of the great hotels in Bath. He had given that up, and now cultivated fruit and vegetables for the market, and his wife bred and fattened poultry and rabbits for sale. After a while, it seemed to me that my oats came very short. I had the beans, but bran was mixed with them instead of oats, of which there were very few, certainly not more than a quarter of what there should have been. In two or three weeks, this began to tell upon my strength and spirit. The grass food, though very good, was not the thing to keep up my condition without corn. However, I could not complain, nor make known my wants. So it went on for about two months, and I wondered that my master did not see that something was the matter. However, one afternoon he rode out into the country to see a friend of his, a gentleman farmer who lived on the road to Wells. This gentleman had a very quick eye for horses, and after he had welcomed his friend, he said, casting his eyes over me, "'It seems to me, Barry, that your horse does not look so well as he did when you first had him. Has he been well?' "'Yes, I believe so,' said my master. "'But he's not nearly so lively as he was. My groom tells me that horses are always dull and weak in the autumn, and that I must expect it.' "'Autumn fiddlesticks!' "'said the farmer. "'Why, this is only August, "'and with your light work and good food "'he ought not to go down like this, "'even if it was autumn. "'How do you feed him?' "'My master told him. "'The other shook his head slowly "'and began to feel me over. "'I can't say who eats your corn, my dear fellow, "'but I'm much mistaken if your horse gets it. "'Have you ridden very fast?' "'No, very gently.' "'Then just put your hand here,' said he, "'passing his hand over my neck and shoulder. "'He is as warm and damp as a horse "'just come up from the grass. 
"'I advise you to look into your stable a little more. "'I hate to be suspicious, "'and, thank heaven, I have no cause to be, "'for I can trust my men, present or absent. "'But there are mean scoundrels, "'wicked enough to rob a dumb beast of his food, "'and you have to look into it.' "'And turning to his man, who had come to take me, "'give this horse a right good feed of bruised oats, "'and don't stint him.' "'Dumb beasts?' "'Yes, we are. "'But if I could have spoken, "'I could have told my master where his oats went to. "'My groom used to come every morning about six o'clock, "'and with him a little boy "'who always had a covered basket with him. "'He used to go with his father into the harness room, "'where the corn was kept, "'and I could see them, when the door stood ajar, "'fill a little bag with oats out of the bin, "'and then he used to be off. Five or six mornings after this, "'just as the boy had left the stable,' The door was pushed open, and a policeman walked in, holding the child tight by the arm. Another policeman followed, and locked the door on the inside, saying, "'Show me the place where your father keeps his rabbit's food.' The boy looked very frightened and began to cry, but there was no escape, and he led the way to the corn bin. Here the policeman found another empty bag like that which was found full of oats in the boy's basket. Filcher was cleaning my feet at the time, "'but they soon saw him, and though he blustered a good deal, "'they walked him off to the lockup, and his boy with him. "'I heard afterward that the boy was not held to be guilty, "'but the man was sentenced to prison for two months. "'Chapter 31. A Humbug "'My master was not immediately suited, "'but in a few days my new groom came. "'He was a tall, good-looking fellow enough, "'but if ever there was a humbug in the shape of a groom, "'Alfred Smirk was the man.' He was very civil to me, and never used me ill. In fact, he did a great deal of stroking and patting when his master was there to see it. He always brushed my mane and tail with water, and my hoofs with oil before he brought me to the door, to make me look smart. But as to cleaning my feet, or looking to my shoes, or grooming me thoroughly, he thought no more of that than if I had been a cow. He left my bit rusty, my saddle damp, and my crupper stiff, Alfred Smirk considered himself very handsome. He spent a great deal of time about his hair, whiskers, and necktie before a little looking-glass in the harness-room. When his master was speaking to him, it was always, "'Yes, sir, yes, sir,' touching his hat at every word. And everyone thought he was a very nice young man, and that Mr. Barry was very fortunate to meet with him. I should say he was the laziest, most conceited fellow I ever came near. Of course, it was a great thing not to be ill-used.' "'but then a horse wants more than that. "'I had a loose box, and might have been very comfortable "'if he had not been too indolent to clean it out. "'He never took all the straw away, "'and the smell from what lay underneath was very bad, "'while the strong vapors that rose made my eyes smart and in flame, "'and I did not feel the same appetite for my food. "'One day his master came in and said, "'Alfred, the stable smells rather strong. "'Shouldn't you give that stall a good scrub "'and throw down plenty of water?' "'Well, sir,' he said, touching his cap, "'I'll do so if you please, sir. "'But it is rather dangerous, sir, "'throwing down water in a horse's box. "'They're very apt to take cold, sir. "'I should not like to do him an injury. "'But I'll do it if you please.' "'Well,' said his master, "'I should not like him to take cold, "'but I don't like the smell of this stable. "'Do you think the drains are all right?' "'Well, sir, now you mention it, 
"'I think the drain does sometimes send back a smell. "'There may be something wrong, sir.' "'Then send for the bricklayer and have it seen to,' said his master. "'Yes, sir, I will.' "'The bricklayer came and pulled up a great many bricks, "'but found nothing amiss. "'So he put down some lime and charged the master five shillings, "'and the smell in my box was just as bad as ever. "'But that was not all.' "'Standing as I did on a quantity of moist straw, "'my feet grew unhealthy and tender, "'and the master used to say, "'I don't know what is the matter with this horse. "'He goes very fumble-footed, "'and I'm sometimes afraid he will stumble.' "'Ah, yes, sir,' said Alfred. "'I've noticed the same myself when I've exercised him.' "'Now, the fact was that he hardly ever did exercise me, "'and when the master was busy, "'I often stood for days together without stretching my legs at all.' "'and yet being fed just as high as if I were at hard work. "'This often disordered my health "'and made me sometimes heavy and dull, "'but more often restless and feverish. "'He never even gave me a meal of green food or bran mash, "'which would have cooled me, "'for he was altogether as ignorant as he was conceited. "'And then, instead of exercise or change of food, "'I had to take horse-balls and draughts, "'which, beside the nuisance of having them poured down my throat, "'used to make me feel ill and uncomfortable. "'One day my feet were so tender "'that, trotting over some fresh stones "'with my master on my back, "'I made two such serious stumbles that, "'as he came down Lansdowne into the city, "'he stopped at the farrier's "'and asked him to see what was the matter with me. "'The man took up my feet one by one "'and examined them. "'Then standing up and dusting his hands, "'one against the other, he said, "'Your horse has got the thrush, and badly, too.' "'His feet are very tender. "'It's fortunate that he has not been down. "'I wonder your groom has not seen to it before. "'This is the sort of thing we find in foul stables, "'where the litter is never properly cleaned out. "'If you will send him here tomorrow, "'I will attend to the hoof, "'and I will direct your man "'how to apply the liniment which I will give him.' "'The next day I had my feet thoroughly cleansed "'and stuffed with tow, "'soaked in some strong lotion, "'and an unpleasant business it was.' The farrier ordered all the litter to be taken out of my box day by day, and the floor kept very clean. Then I was to have bran mashes, a little green food, and not so much corn, till my feet were well again. With this treatment I soon regained my spirits, but Mr. Barry was so much disgusted at being twice deceived by his grooms that he determined to give up keeping a horse, and to hire when he wanted one. I was therefore kept till my feet were quite sound." and was then sold again. Thanks for joining us for these three chapters of Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. If you're enjoying our stories, please do stop a moment and send us a kind review for 1001 Greatest Love Stories. We'll return next Sunday at noon, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll see you then.